Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 3, or... Leonard Woolley was a British archaeologist born in London in the United Kingdom in 1880. From a young age, Woolley knew that he was interested in archaeology and worked at British sites of Roman occupation before travelling abroad to work on sites along the Nile Valley and the Levant. Woolley would ultimately end up working at a site which he is most well known for working at, and that site is in Mesopotamia. From the 1920s onwards, Woolley would utilise hundreds of workmen to exhume thousands of bodies and discovered tens of thousands of artefacts. It was thanks to the work of a man called William Loftus that Woolley was posted to this site in Mesopotamia. Some 70 years previously, Loftus had shown a keen interest in the site that had been known to have been the home of some very old bricks with some very strange symbols on them. So when Woolley was asked to go there, he jumped at the opportunity. One of the things that he identified at the site was a flood stratum, which is a layer of sedimentary material which demonstrates that a flood had occurred in the past, and this flood stratum was huge. Such was the size of it that Woolley would compare it to the Genesis flood narrative of the Tanakh, also known as the Hebrew Bible. This is not the first time that we have spoken of the flood from the biblical book of Genesis as we mentioned it before when speaking of the Epic of Gilgamesh, an epic story written in ancient times about ancient Mesopotamia. The Epic of Gilgamesh also makes note of a significant and catastrophic flood. Now, this is all quite significant in the story of the history of the world. Certainly, biblical writings were to some degree unquestionable, right up until the 19th century, when all these scientists stopped and made people think about whether there was a completely different story of human history based on many millenniums of evolution. This could render the book of Genesis as completely unbelievable rubbish. However, the fact that we can see mention of significant floods in contemporary texts such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the fact that Leonard Woolley was identifying a huge flood stratum in Mesopotamia, may suggest that biblical stories may well be based on events that we can all agree actually happened. The site where Leonard Woolley was working when he identified the flood stratum was Tel El Mukayar. As the name suggests, it is the location of a tell, which is a mound, most often created in these cases by the remnants of a city which once thrived there. Some believe that this is the site of Ur-Kazdin, mentioned in the book of Genesis also, as the birthplace of Abraham. Abraham is the common patriarch of Judaism, Christianity and Islam the three Abrahamic religions. Therefore, today we call this site of an ancient city, or possibly the birthplace of Abraham, and possibly a city which witnessed a great flood. Or was built on an ancient coastline, long since gone after hundreds of years of silting. 
it now sits inland. Excavation suggests to us that the site may have been occupied from around 3800 BCE, a time when Mesopotamia was moving from the Ubayid period into the Uruk period, or would have been a city that was humbly growing and developing throughout the 4th millennium BCE and into the 3rd millennium BCE where the city began to flourish. Wealth and Imports The year is 2800 BCE and the Bronze Age has arrived at Ur, the Sumerian city-state on the banks of the Euphrates River near the Persian Gulf. The residents of Ur would have been creating cast artefacts made from bronze. However, we do know that Ur was a place of amazing diversity of precious materials. For a start, it was one of the many succeeding city-states which seemed to have developed a very healthy trade network between them. But not only that, but with the wider world. We know this because we see evidence of this through the excavations at Ur. In order to acquire metals, the people of Ur had to capitalise on their strength, which was the prosperous agricultural industry made possible by the fertile marshlands which surrounded the city. In fact, canals in and around Ur were much more useful for transport rather than crop irrigation. Therefore, Ur could trade via land or sea with relative ease, so we could describe Ur as a port city. One place that we do believe that Ur was able to trade with is modern-day India and peoples such as the Harappans. It looks like this could have been a source of metals, textiles and precious stones, but also of another material that we are yet to mention, namely lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli was definitely been imported to Sumer. It is mentioned multiple times in the Epic of Gilgamesh. It is an attractive metamorphic stone which was popular due to its vivid and eye-catching attractive blue colour which was highly sought after for decorative purposes such as jewellery items. We can also feel confident about the transport links of ore being made easier by the use of wheeled transport. We already recognise that Sumerians had made the most of wheels to build farming vehicles in order to multiply their production ability with the use of oxen. We also know that those wheels were coming in handy for those army commanders who needed to keep a close eye on battle developments by riding onager-drawn chariots. So we can also be confident that traders were carrying goods on wheeled vehicles too. We know from the evidence of seals excavated in Mesopotamia that there was terrestrial trade routes with the lands east of the Caspian Sea which would have been supported by the occupants of the towns of the Iranian Plateau in between. In terms of the evidence for maritime trade there is written evidence of shipping and sailing in contemporary documents. We can also see cuneiform tablets on the Dilmun Islands of the Persian Gulf, what we know today as Bahrain and Falika, which is now a Kuwaiti island. If Sumerians were sailing to Dilmun, they would have been sailing to Magan, which we believe is a culture that lived around the area of the Strait of Hormuz which is what connects the Persian Gulf to the Gulf of Oman. It has been difficult to identify direct trade links between Ur and Egypt from this particular period, however. 
Nonetheless, these developed trade links enabled ore to become a key centre of trade in the known world, and as such the prosperity of the city-state was enhanced significantly. The canals of ore would have more likely have been shipping canals as opposed to irrigation canals, symbolising the sheer significance of ore as a trading post and the successful management of ore and its economies. The wealth of ore can be identified through some of the excavations from the burial sites. Royal Cemetery at Or. It was during the 1920s that Leonard Woolley would stumble across an extremely significant burial site. Artifacts uncovered from this site are absolutely astonishing and it is also in part down to the pioneering archaeological techniques of Leonard Woolley that we have learned so much about what has been uncovered. The cemetery that Woolley discovered at Orr was the site of over 2,000 burials, so it was very significant in size. Some of the burials appeared to be quite ordinary. Others, on the other hand, are considerable. An example of this would have been the grave of Puabi. So who was Puabi? Well, Puabi is a very interesting character. Puabi is in fact an Acadian name and cylinder seals found inside her tomb suggest that she may have been a queen or a priestess. Queen Puabi's grave is something of great wonder. Her headdress or crown is an ornate floral adornment made from gold. But much more wonderful than this is the incredibly diverse collection of jewellery. Gold and silver were present among the jewellery as well as the previously mentioned lapis lazuli. The vividly blue rock that would have likely reached ore through long distance trading. We also see the brownish red silica mineral carnelian and the cryptocrystalline silica rock agate in use within the jewellery items also. If that wasn't astonishing enough in itself, the surrounding pit of her tomb is even more dumbfounding and poignant. Here we find the remains of five armed men, four grooms for a pair of oxen, three attendants and twelve other female attendants. These people must have been part of a ritual sacrifice for the Queen. We cannot establish whether they gave their lives deliberately or whether they were given no choice. Small cups were found near to the bodies, suggesting self-sacrifice through poisoning. But also some skulls show signs of blunt force trauma, which suggests that murder was necessary before carefully positioning the bodies within the burial pit. Either way, it is thought that these additional bodies may have been offered to Queen Puabi to guide her on her journey to the afterlife. Another tomb belongs to a man called Mescalamdug. We may assume that he was a king. He certainly was a ruler of Or, according to the artefacts within his tomb, not least of all the gold helmet on which his name is inscribed. His name is not to be found on those all-important Sumerian king lists, the contemporary lists of kings excavated in various Mesopotamian sites, but we do know that the man referred to as his son, Mesanepada, does appear on the list suggesting a royal connection. However, unlike Puabi, Mescalamdug is buried without a retinue of attendants. Deciphering what this can tell us about Sumerian society as a whole is a very difficult thing. Maybe Puabi's 
lavish burial ceremony suggests that she had been elevated to a goddess status, whereas Mescalamdug had not, explaining the absence of a retinue. The presence of such objects made of precious material, so carefully and elaborately created, signifies an extreme amount of effort, which points towards a stratified society where the elite were absolutely elite over the everyday workers. There are some other interesting artefacts recovered from what we can refer to as the Royal Cemetery of Awe. One very important artefact was identified thanks to the archaeological forethought of Leonard Woolley. Previous to Woolley's age, many archaeologists just excavated things, picked them up and put them in boxes. Woolley was a lot more thoughtful and observant. He recognised that some of the artefacts had been made from wood and that the original piece had decayed, leaving a void in which Woolley would pour wax and plaster in order to cast a replica. It is through this technique that we would discover lyres in the tombs. Lyres are actually stringed musical instruments not completely unlike harps. Another artefact recovered is an ornately decorated wooden box which has been named the Standard of Ore. We do not know what the purpose of this wooden box is, but we do know that it was deliberately buried in a man's tomb at the Royal Cemetery. We can determine things from the box even though we don't know its purpose. The box is decorated with lapis lazuli and red limestone which would have had to have been imported. The box depicts events that can give us clues about the society of ore. On one side we can see the clear notion of a stratified society. Clearly there is a ruler, an elite class, a servant class and royal court entertainers. We see one individual possibly playing the lyre that was found in one of the other burial chambers. On the other side of the box we can see images of war with that organised and disciplined army depicted and most likely well trained in phalanx formations that were likely exercised against the Akkadian invaders who were becoming at some point in the future. The Royal Game of Awe Not only did Leonard Woolley uncover items evident of great trade and wealth and evident of trade both terrestrial and maritime, not only did he uncover these incredible tombs filled with grave goods and human and animal sacrifice alongside ornately decorated objects of wonder such as the standard of awe, but he also uncovered another astonishing discovery which has since been called the Royal Game of Awe. The Royal Game of Awe is the earliest board game ever found. However, it would be easy to assume that it would be quite basic and bland. On the contrary, rules of this game have been discovered on cuneiform tablets and when played, it is absolutely enjoyable. If you don't believe me, I challenge you to watch a game without wanting to have a go yourself afterwards. I will post a video where you can enjoy the drama of a game in action. The actual board itself is an amazing creation in itself. It is inlaid with shell and lapis lazuli. It is a race game where players move their tokens around the board in accordance to the number thrown with the dice. Some tablets explaining rules suggest that the fortune of the game can directly correlate to the player's fortune in life, with some of the squares having a special meaning. Such is the ornate beauty of the game board that I wouldn't expect that every household had one of these games. It was probably quite a precious thing to own and was likely played by the elites who had the time on their hands for such things and like the less fortunate members of society who would have been more concerned with cultivating crops for a payout of grain rather than playing games. Stratification and slavery 
It is incredibly difficult to ascertain the true stratification of society at all and the true definition of what we might refer to in the modern age as slavery. Warfare was clearly a factor in the middle of the 3rd millennium BCE and we can see this from the artefacts discovered depicting war circumstances such as on the standard of all. So the question would be whether manpower was stolen from neighbouring city-states as the spoils of war and whether slavery was an oppressive act or whether it was an accepted part of everyday life. If we look at things realistically, the ruler of all is not going to be building his own palace so it is necessary to accept that society would have been completely stratified and there was very likely to be an understanding within the population of Or that you would either need to live by the law of the city or face the consequences. The success of Or would have relied on the day-to-day running of society being as smooth as the day-to-day running of society in neighbouring city-states. If Or had fallen behind in its progress, then that would have left it vulnerable to the prying eyes of other city-states looking to possibly take advantage of the wealth of the city. When we consider whether slavery in Or would have been a bad thing, we have to consider that the slave would have been looked after, and we have to consider that the number of slaves would have outnumbered the number of masters. If slaves were generally kept and fed well and if they believed that the deities of the city would want them to be a good worker for the sake of the city then there may have been no need for us to judge the existence of slavery by modern standards. If there had been a mass revolt then would the higher classes have been able to suppress it and if not then there would have had to have been some mutual respect between all parties involved. There would have been many jobs to be completed in a city-state such as ore, creation of mud bricks for the construction of building, tanning of animal hides for the creation of material, the milling of cultivated cereal to create flour for bread. In order for a large stratified society such as the city of ore to operate effectively, there would have been dozens of jobs of this nature to be carried out by many workers and indeed slaves. So we have established that Or was throughout the 3rd millennium BCE a wealthy Sumerian city-state that had a stratified society headed by royal leadership which oversaw the city's trade and industry by guiding and controlling the population by utilising an elite class of governors to manage the day-to-day running of each of the city's main aspects and an elite class of priests to consolidate the spiritual ethos of the city in respect of its deities. The History of Or During the early dynastic period of Mesopotamia, Or was one of the major city-states of Sumer, and as such it would become the capital city of Sumer on more than one occasion. Two pre-Akkadian dynasties are mentioned on the Sumerian king lists, although both of them do appear to be comparatively brief when compared to the dynasties of other city-states such as Uruk and Kish, for example. It was around 2300 BCE that Sargon of Akkad marched into Sumer and conquered all of the city-states one by one. Or was included in this invasion and subsequently fell under the rule of the Akkadians. Sargon would instate his own daughter, Enheduanna, as the high priestess of the goddess Inanna and the moon god Nana, which were the deities of Or. And as such she lived in Or and her image is portrayed on a calcite disc which was excavated at Or in 1927 by... Leonard Woolley. You can find out more about Enheduanna in Volume 2, Episode 2 of this podcast. As we also discovered in the last podcast, the Akkadians were in turn conquered by the city-states that they invaded, 
and outsiders who invaded the area, most notably the Gutians from the northwest who were suggested to be ruling Sumer, even though there doesn't appear to be any real effort to socially reform or rule from within like the Akkadians did. This appears to have given the Sumerian city-states a chance to rebuild and consolidate their societies, and this was occurring in Or as well as anywhere. It could have been an alliance of Sumerian city-states that chased the Gutians out of Sumer once and for all. Utu-Hengau appears to be one of the governors of the neighbouring city-state of Uruk, and it appears that he was the one accredited with the success of driving Tirigan, the last Gutian king mentioned on any Sumerian king lists, out of power. Utu Hengel had a daughter, and that daughter married a man who is vital to our chronological story of Mesopotamia. That man was Or Namu, and he would take the kingship back to Or in what would become the notable. Third Dynasty of Or. The Third Dynasty of Or. As we mentioned in the previous podcast, Utu Hengal, the king of Uruk, who is accredited with running the Guti out of Sumer, lost his life by drowning. Or Namu, the king of Or, was there to fill the vacuum, and the Third Dynasty of Or was underway. Ornamu appears to have picked up a tough job. The Guti were not as cultured as the Sumerians and the Akkadians before them and as such it does appear that society seems to have broken down somewhat. Organised society was suffering. Agricultural production was not under control. Cities had become comparatively lawless. It required a strong hand to get things back on track and by all accounts it does appear that Ornamu was the man to get things back under control. It may have been while Ornamu was king that a particular law code was brought into effect and we know this from some recovered stone tablets. It has been hard to date these tablets and as such we don't really know who exactly was the king, but we can be quite confident when stating that they are laws that are attributable to the third dynasty of Or. Criminals during these periods would have had to have been made to pay a fine in silver, and the amount of silver was apportioned to the seriousness of the crime. The head of the court of law was the king, and he would have the final decree in all things. However, such was the size of the city of Or that it would require mayors or judges to preside over proceedings and sometimes this might have been done in a public place. Fortunately, tablets exist that give us an indication of the types of punishments one could expect for being a criminal in Or in the year 2100 BCE. If a man commits a murder, that man must be killed. This is not a surprising law. If a man commits a robbery, he will be killed. This one seems quite harsh, but perhaps considering as necessary to prevent such an action. If a man commits a kidnapping, he is to be imprisoned and pay 15 shekels of silver. Now, I'm not sure where a man would be imprisoned, but we do know that 15 shekels of silver is around 125 grams of silver. So this would also indicate that silver was being used as a type of currency to represent something like an amount of barley, which would have been of real purpose to the owner. If a slave married a native person, he or she is to hand the firstborn son over to his owner. So there is a clear definition of human rights that are particular to the slave class. 
This is also highlighted by the fact that if a man deflowers the virgin wife of a young man, they shall kill that male. However, if a man preceded by force and deflowered the virgin female slave of another man, that man must pay five shekels. The slave class were clearly limited in their rights and limited in their individual importance. If a man divorces his first-time wife, he shall pay her one minor of silver. A minor being the equivalent of 60 shekels, or half a kilogram. So there was some compensation for disparaged women in this society. If a man is accused of sorcery, he must undergo ordeal by water. If he is proven innocent, his accuser must pay three shekels. So this is quite enlightening. There is obviously a fear of the mysterious where witchcraft and wizardry will not be tolerated. However, it seems that the judgment of someone's capabilities will simply come down to their ability to survive being submerged in water, which to our modern minds will probably seem ridiculous and unrelated but to the people of awe it may have seemed like the only way to find out the truth. It also highlights the danger of going around casting criminal accusations. There is a fine if you are wrong so slander will not be tolerated. If a slave escapes from the city limits and someone returns him the owner shall pay two shekels to the one who returned him. So we can see how controlled the slave class was and how this control was encouraged. Violent injury of somebody else is subject to fines. If a man's slave woman, comparing herself to her mistress, speaks insolently to her, her mouth shall be scoured with one quart of salt. This sounds like a very unpleasant experience. Certainly a very good deterrent though. There are also compensations for farmland owners who have in some way been inconvenienced for a crop yield such as through deliberate or accidental flooding of the field. So we can determine that there were some serious efforts made to control the population by law. However, as we have discussed previously, it is fundamental that society understands that the law is almighty, which is why the deities of the cities are used to enforce the law. The population must understand that they have a duty to their city, their king and their city's deity. Or Namu would take the initiative in awe by building the Great Ziggurat. Leonard Woolley excavated the remains of the Ziggurat of Ore during his work there. It does appear that most of the remains were of the reconstructed Ziggurat of the 6th century BCE, but the foundations certainly date back to the 3rd dynasty of Ore. The Ziggurat was part of a temple complex which was built in honour of the moon god Nana. Nana was traditionally the deity of Or, but we know this because 200 years earlier, Sargon the Great, who established the Akkadian Empire in Mesopotamia, made his daughter, Enheduanna, the high priestess of the moon god Nana, and she was based in Or. Such was the scale of the project that it may well have been completed by Or-Namu's son, Shulgi, but we do know that this was one of a number of ziggurats built in varying city-states of Sumer, which was under the influence of Or. Previous to the ziggurats of the 3rd dynasty of Or, these central buildings of temple complexes were thought to be quite humble by comparison. Shulgi Or-Namu died in battle and his death and descent to the netherworld has been recorded in poetry form on cuneiform tablets. The crown passed to his son, Shulgi, who
who throughout his own long reign embarked on many a campaign to consolidate and expand this Neo-Sumerian Empire, risen from the ashes of the destroyed Akkadian Empire which crushed Sumer in the first place. Shulgi understood the importance of his own self-image and as such he would proclaim himself as a god. During this time the city-states of Sumer were brought under the rule of the capital city of Ur and the cities would be obliged to pay taxes to the state. Mari in the east of modern day Syria on the shores of the Euphrates and Elam to the east of Sumer were under the influence of the third dynasty of Ur. So during the 21st century BCE Sumer was once again stable, strong, influential and organised. Great centres of manufacturing existed where thousands of workers were creating things like textiles for example and this would include a great many of the females within the societies. Wealth was being used to fund the further construction of canals, temples and palaces. Agricultural production was thriving with flour, bread and beer being made with the produce. Silver was being used as a type of universal currency. Professional armies were being trained. The state was well established. So what went wrong? The fall of Or. If we go back over the history of the region, we know that nomadic people from the west had always been a nuisance to the Mesopotamian occupiers. The Akkadian king, Shah Kali Shari, certainly had his fair share of problems with these people who were considered to be uncouth by comparison to people of the organised societies of Akkad and Sumer. These western peoples were the Amorites, who were still living a very nomadic way of life without the organised, sedentary or agricultural lifestyle of the Mesopotamians. However, the Amorites had always looked upon the Mesopotamian societies as fair pickings. So if there were any spoils to be taken from the fringes, then they would do so. But the reality was that they were never really any kind of serious threat to the region as organised societies of Mesopotamia could easily chase them out. However, something seems to have gone dreadfully wrong for the Neo-Sumerians during the 21st century BCE. One of the sons of Shulgi who ruled as king, whose name was Shu-Sin, realised that the Amorite threat was becoming more and more serious and had to construct a wall to specifically aid in repelling the Amorite threat. The Amorites would continue their attacks and quite why the threat was growing larger than ever before is not totally clear. Perhaps the Amorites had become more organised, become larger in numbers or become more technologically advanced. Maybe a drought or a famine had weakened this Neo-Sumerian state. Either way, the, the attacks continued into the reign of Shu-Sin's son, Ibi-Sin. The Amorites appeared to have penetrated the Shu-Sin's wall, prompting Ibi-Sin to hurriedly construct fortifications at Nippur and the capital city of Ur. However, the empire was fragmenting under the pressure and those cities that had become a part of the area of influence under the great rulers of the third dynasty of Ur were now breaking away and opting to fend for themselves. The Neo-Sumerian Empire was becoming even weaker and it was eventually the Elamites from the east who dealt the killer blow by taking advantage of the weakened city of Ur and moving inwards. Despite Ibi-Sin's desperate attempts to strike a deal with the Amorites to save his skin and the remnants of the once great empire, the Elamites were able to capture the king and take him back to Elam, where he ultimately perished. As for the city of Ur, its demise 
was lamented as follows. O Father Nana, that city into ruins was made. Its people, not potsherds, filled its sides. Its walls were breached, the people groan. In its lofty gates, where they were wont to promenade, dead bodies were lying about. In its boulevards, where the feasts were celebrated, scattered they lay. In all its streets, where they were wont to promenade, dead bodies were lying about. In its places, where the festivities of the land took place, the people lay in heaps. Or, its weak and its strong perished through hunger. Mothers and fathers who did not leave their houses were overcome by fire. The young lying on their mother's laps like fish were carried off by the waters. In the city the wife was abandoned, the son was abandoned, the possessions were scattered about. O Nana, or has been destroyed, its people have been dispersed. In 1935, Sir Leonard Woolley was knighted for his contributions to the discipline of archaeology. And that concludes our podcast look at the city of Orr. Thanks very much for listening. I got a little bit carried away with that episode, so it's been a bit of a long one this week. I apologise for that. Lots of fascinating stuff with the first law codes that we've come across. Very interesting to read. And then also the Royal Game of Awe. I would encourage you to visit our social media pages. That's at Facebook. It's all called History of the World Podcast. Facebook, Twitter. You'll find a video of the Royal Game of Awe being brought to life by the Assyriologist from the British Museum, Mr Irving Finkel who uh, plays, actually plays a game of the Royal Game of Awe. And it's, uh, he believes that he's discovered the rules of it and really it's a great strategy game. It's, it's, it's actually quite interesting to watch the game unfold. So I really do encourage you to watch it. I should out of courtesy certainly thank Ryan Stitt at the History of Ancient Greece podcast for his support of my podcast and um, hopefully um, I'll be a sort of a special guest introducer of his podcast at some point in the future so I'm looking forward to that and um, I'd like to thank him for his promotion and I'd also like to encourage you to listen to his extremely well made podcast if ancient Greece is interesting to you and why wouldn't it be then please give his podcast a check out John Hyatt got in touch with the History of the World podcast after recommending me on Facebook by saying very thorough and entertaining, thank you John and uh, then he followed up by sending me an email just said, "Um, Chris I just wanted to say that I am hooked on your podcast The History of the World, I discovered it several days ago as I was perusing different podcasts about one of my favourite subjects, history Keep up the phenomenal work. It takes a lot of courage and temerity to tackle such a behemoth task as putting together podcasts that will allow all the important newsworthy stories of the world stretched out over all the known civilizations and cultures. The history of the world really does read like the greatest literature book ever compiled. Uh, and then he goes on to say a couple of questions, if you don't mind. How do you pronounce and spell your last name? It's, my name's Chris Hasler. Um, I tried to look you up on Google and all it gave me was several hits from uh, for a skateboard rider. I can't ride a skateboard, um, really, truly, I can't. Um, if I attempt to, I would seriously injure myself, so that's definitely not me. Uh, do you have uh, pictures of yourself anywhere on the internet? The social media pages are good for that. 
I like to associate a face with a name, especially an intelligent man such as yourself. I might have an intelligent woman actually telling me uh, what to say in the background for all we know, but no, thank you, thank you for the compliment. Uh, who is very worthy of recognition in the academic world. Also, are you located in the UK or perhaps Australia? I can't really tell by your accent. Well, thanks again for uh, in advance for all the many podcasts I look forward to listening to in the weeks and maybe even months to come. Yeah, I love this connection that, um, you know, it's a, often you find um, that um, Americans can confuse my accent with the Australian accent and um, there there is probably a a very good reason for that Um, it's it's almost like that same sort of thing where um, British people struggle to tell uh, the immediate difference between American and Canadian accents let's say Um, the Australian accent is very much um, influenced by the uh, the southeast England accent that I have purely for the fact that a lot of the first English speakers in Australia came from my part of England, and that's why there's a, a, a sort of connection between Australian and and my accent um, because there is a connection, and it can sometimes be hard to distinguish. So that's that's the, very much probably the reason why. But thank you very much, John Hyatt from Columbus, Ohio, in the United States of America. Thank you. And we got a review from Oracle007 on iTunes. Thanks very much. The iTunes reviews are very valuable. You hear every podcaster um, begging for iTunes reviews. So thank you. Got five stars. Refreshingly informative. The amount of information in this podcast is incredible. The content is interesting and very well, very well researched. Um, I enjoy Chrissy's presentation in a fact-based and unbiased way. I've learnt a great deal from this podcast. Can't wait for more episodes. I must admit, I do endeavour to be very, very neutral in my presentation as I do believe that that is correct in terms of history presentation. I do believe that you have to allow the listener to uh, have the bias if you're presenting and um, look I mean the best historians do have an opinion and it's you know it's it's quite it adds a bit of colour to presentation when historians do uh, give you their opinion after all they're the ones that have studied it so they're the ones that will have formulated a valid opinion but however it shouldn't be presented in such a way that I'm ramming down anyone's throat any opinion that I might have about the uh, about the work. I can state my opinion, but that should be the limit, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. We got a review or a comment, I should say, on CastBox saying, uh, I love this podcast, hope you the best, thank you very much. That's from NRL Narangarel. Thank you very, very much. Now, the last thing I want to mention before I sign off this week is the Princess Royal Trust for Carers in Hampshire. Hampshire being a one of the counties in the south of uh, England in the United Kingdom. And uh, this is a trust for carers. Um, a carer is somebody of any age who provides unpaid support to family or friends who could not manage without this help. This could be caring for a relative, partner or a friend who is ill, frail, disabled or has mental health or substance misuse problems. These carers um, give their time uh, without much reward in return and um, it's up to us, the, the goodwill of the public, to look after these people and show our appreciation and support and uh, one of our listeners called the Food Soldier, that's his Twitter handle, um, is going to be running the London Marathon. And, uh, well, that's a great undertaking. It's uh, 26 miles and a bit of running. It takes place, I believe, in April, if I'm not mistaken, so only a couple of months away. Listen, I I can't run 2.6 miles without um, without collapsing, so 26 miles 
goodness knows how you're going to do it, the food soldier, but I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you've been practising a lot. And um, I hope that you do raise a lot of motivating money for this incredibly worthy cause, the Princess Royal Trust for Carers in Hampshire. And I appeal to all of the uh, History of the World podcast listeners to just take a look and consider a donation. It doesn't matter if it's big or small uh, because it all adds up and it can make the life of a carer a lot more bearable and a lot more easy um, and in turn will um, enhance the life of that person being cared for as well. So uh, it's not something that is particularly well funded in uh, to my knowledge. So let's try and do our bit. I'll be putting links on the social media platforms. Okay, so next week we're going to carry on with the chronological story. Um, or has fallen... And now the city-states need to rebuild themselves um, and uh, prepare for the next powerful dynasties that are going to emerge out of that. So in the north, it's going to be the Assyrian Empire, the very first Assyrians. And in the south, we're going to see the emergence of Babylon and the Babylonians, and particularly Hammurabi and Hammurabi's law code. So um, another very interesting episode to look forward to next week so until that time have a lovely and safe week everybody look after yourselves and uh, we'll see you again next time the history of the world podcast is hosted by audio boom it is available on spotify apple podcasts overcast Castbox, podcast republic stitcher and tune in. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. Twitter.